Welcome to the Sentac Podcast. The Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children is a collective group of like-minded healthcare professionals involved in the care of children with otolaryngology, hearing, speech, and swallowing disorders. We are uniquely composed of physicians and allied healthcare professionals, including otolaryngologists, pediatricians, basic scientists, audiologists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. My name is Javen Nation. I am the Communications Director for Sentac. This first season of our podcast, we will focus on having conversations with different teams and team members that provide specialized care for children. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome. I'm so excited to have a conversation today with the Medical College of Wisconsin Trach Vent team. Uh, today we're joined by Michael McCormick, a pediatric otolaryngologist at Medical College of Wisconsin, Cecilia Lang, a nurse practitioner and team manager, um, Jennifer Henningfeld, a pediatric pulmonologist and medical director, Grace Flanagan, uh, the respiratory therapist, uh, one of the respiratory therapists who are part of the team, Lisa Mulkentine, uh, another respiratory therapist who's part of the team, and Christine Beckers, uh, a speech language pathologist. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, so let's start with this question. What is the Trach Vent team? So our tracheostomy home ventilator team, otherwise known as the Trach Vent team, uh, it is a multidisciplinary team that actually has been around for over 40 years at Children's Wisconsin and Medical College. So we're pretty lucky as a team to have a history that was rooted in multidisciplinary care. It started with a pediatric pulmonary and ICU doctor partnering with one of our ENT doctors back in the 1980s and saying, we have to figure out a way to get our kids that are on home ventilators out of the ICU and home. So they brought a nurse on board, a respiratory therapist and a case manager, and it really grew from there. So our team today is composed of our pulmonary doctors, our ENT doctors, speech language pathologists. We have an, uh, nurses that work on our team. We have three respiratory therapists and then our families um, are also part of our team. So, and physical therapy, occupational therapy, they work with these kids, all of our social work as well. doctors. And social worker as well. Yep, and our social workers, yes. That's very interesting. So the families are part of the team. How, how are the families, um, what, what role do they play and how do they uh, fit into the meetings? So our families, we meet with them before the trach goes in. So myself and our nurse clinician, Cindy, we meet with these families after a consult comes to us from either ENT or pulmonary or one of the ICU doctors. And we are pretty frank with them about what this journey is going to entail. And we ask them for partnership. We actually have them sign an agreement um, either before the trach goes in or shortly thereafter, saying that they are willing to partner in the care of this child who is going to go home with a trach and a ventilator. And part of that partnership is learning all of the care and coming and being a part of this journey with us while the child's in the ICU. We don't want them to just be coming when teaching is scheduled. We want them to be there at the bedside as much as they can and be present because that's how they learn to take care of their child. So that end in our care conferences, which are our weekly family meetings we have with these families, that's where they really 
help us drive the care of their child. It always starts out more us talking to them about what's the medical update, what's the discharge planning update, what's the education update. And then it really shifts more towards them leading the meeting and telling us, this is the medical update. This is where we're at with teaching. And these are the questions I have related to discharge. So that's how they're a part of our team. Yeah, very cool. Um, So Jennifer, are you okay if I call you by your first name? That's fine, yes. Um, can you can you take me through the formal structure of, of the team? Uh, how often you meet um, and just how it's built? Yeah, so we have the core team, which is what Cecilia and Mike sort of chimed into, that are the people that sort of touch these patients throughout the continuity of their care, starting from before the trait goes in until the trait comes out. Um, and so we've sort of identified that those people have a vested interest in how the program flows and how we all function together. And so we've really set up a structure so that we have opportunities to collaborate with each other in a formal way. Um, and so there's a couple of different meetings that we attend on a regular basis in order to be able to collaborate in that fashion. Um, one of them is that on a monthly basis that core team meets to talk about programmatic details, policies and procedures, Um, any sort of updates that we may have from research or um, social work or um, publications or um, like patient information that we want to push out to the families. Um, And so that we do about once a week or once a month. um, And that also includes a parent representative. So as Cecilia was saying about how we include families in this process, that's another way that we've really incorporated family voice into um, this experience for them um, because we have two kind of seasoned families who uh, participate in some of those conversations and help drive um, both uh, the perspective of how it would affect their life and then other parents in the program and kids as well. On top of that, we know that this care is more than just our core group, especially on the inpatient side. They really um, live in the ICUs. Um, So the neonatal ICU and the pediatric ICU is where these patients get admitted in our hospital. Um, None of them go to the general floor because that's where the competencies for the nursing staff are. And so any decision that affects um, the ICU level care is also going to affect our program and how we function in the inpatient side. Um, Additionally, respiratory therapists also touch these kids a lot. Um, And so we've started a, a a board of directors, as we call it, where we actually take kind of high-level representatives of those departments, and we sit down and we talk about um, handoffs and um, other ways that we may need to think about care of these kids from um, more of a policy type of procedure um, intervention. For example, at one point we were talking about post-op um, sedation and how we keep these kids still across, you know, the NICU and the PICU so that we have um, a same pattern of care across both um, of the places. And then on a weekly basis, we also do weekly rounds where we will have um, more inpatient updates where we're really pushing towards making sure that we're um, timeliness to discharge as a priority. And that involves significant communication between our team and the inpatient teams. And so during those rounds, we talk about any barriers that may be happening from medical care or from um, social barriers to discharge and how we can work as a unit to try to keep pushing that forward. So we have social work there, we have discharge planners there, our core team is there, and then we usually have an ICU and a both pediatric and NICU representative um, and a pediatric pulmonary doctor and ENT doctor or nurse practitioner or PA attends those meetings as well so that everyone's sort of in the same page. 
Very interesting. And so how does it work? Is it every patient who's in the hospital with, with a trach or who's on a vent is, is on your list? With a trach or a trach and ventilator is followed by our core team. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And then do, do you guys um, actually round as a team on the, the patients or is it, is it more sitting down and discussing them? With COVID, it became a, um, a Zoom call. <laughs> it used to be where we actually collected around a table and were able to interact more um, in a unified spot. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have some bedside rounds that we do um, where smaller groups of us will split apart and discuss um, more smaller parts of the care like uh, skin wound care or um, um, ventilator management, for example. But um, the big overarching things are now all Zoom. <laughs> That's in addition to, you know, the daily ICU rounds that that happen. So this is more, as Jen said, it's more discharge focused. So it's very targeted. It's not the, you know, head to toe assessment that happens at, you know, bedside rounds every day. Interesting. Yeah. Can I, how many, how many patients do you, do you guys, you know, discuss or round on each, each time you have a meeting? Just generally, like what's, what's the numbers? It, it varies. Um, you know, this year has been a little bit different where maybe our average daily inpatient census is like seven or eight, but there's been times where it's as high as 18. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Um, excellent. Okay. So, so to kind of illustrate um, how the team kind of fits into patient care, uh, we kind of discussed this before. We're, we're going to go through a, a patient case situation. Uh, we're going to go from a patient getting a tracheostomy all the way through this patient being discharged from the hospital. And we're gonna talk with each of you and, and what role you guys play as a team and how you guys uh, interact as a team in this particular, or in the, in the patient care. Um, so we're gonna start with the trach patient, sorry, with the trach placement. So I'm gonna start with you, Mike. Um, we're gonna get into the weeds a little bit here about um, the trach placement. Um, can you talk to me um, about the, the surgery, um, a few things we all think about when we uh, do a pediatric trach. Uh, are you doing horizontal versus vertical sutures? What kind of stay ties are you using? Do you place a maturation suture or sutures at the time? What type of, what type of protective material do you use around the neck? And then when's your, when, when do you generally do your first trach change? Yeah, all good, um, all good points of discussion. And as we talked about um, offline, I think some of these things we could talk about for an entire um, conference and have been talked about for entire conferences. So generally when our team is the otolaryngology service gets called, obviously the decision's already been made to place the trach, as you said. And so, sometimes we have a little bit of a heads up and we're in, we've met the families and been involved with them um, before, especially if they're airway patients. Um, but generally when we um, try to plan our procedures, we try to um, incorporate a number of things. One is if they have any other kind of perioperative needs and, and we've um, kind of gotten away from combining trachs with other procedures because of some of the, the perioperative and postoperative morbidity and complications that we are seeing sometimes. Um, so we try to do this in isolation and in the safest way possible. Um, but to the technique um, details that, that you talk about, I mean, there's some variability amongst our group. I mean, there's probably seven or eight of us that, that do trachs in our group at this time. Um, and we, we don't all do things exactly the same way. And that's, that's a product of our different backgrounds and training. Um, 
for, and, and it also varies depending on the age. Like, so for me personally, um, all the, the younger children, like all our neonates are, are going to have a, a vertical incision in the trachea. And whereas the older children, um, like the adolescents are going to have um, probably more of a horizontal or a Bjork flap. So it, it, things like that depend on the patient and depend on your personal preference as a surgeon. Um, but all this, all the trachs are pretty much going to have stay, stay ties, stay sutures, as you mentioned, um, for the, until the first trach change. Um, I like to mature the stomas as much as possible, as long as they're clinically stable for that process. And by that, I mean um, physically suturing the, trache the trachea to the skin, to the wound, um, so as to facilitate healing, number one, and also to um, make it a little bit safer in case there is an accidental decannulation, especially during that first um, uh, week or so. Um, we always have a protective material around the neck, typically that's gonna be a Mabalex dressing or something similar. Um, the first trach change is a little bit variable. I'd say it's usually around day five to seven after the trach goes in. Um, I try to be on the shorter side of that as much as possible, just because um, I, I like to mature my stomas, which I think um, allows for a quicker trach change, but it also kind of minimizes the amount of sedation and um, paralysis that you need during that first week because we are pretty strict in terms of we really want the baby, especially the babies to be very still so that we don't have any accidents happen. Um, we even, um, you know, have some restrictions on parents holding the children and taking them out of the, of the crib, especially during that first week. So, um, and that's all for safety purposes. So I, because of those reasons, I try to be a little bit earlier in my first trach change, usually around day four or five. I've seen some papers that have um, started to look at trach changes for neonates as early as three days afterwards. Um, I think that's a little bit bold, um, but I think it's doable in the right patient. Um, so hopefully that kind of touches on um, a lot of the technique in terms of the surgery itself. Um, we always have a pretty um, robust and uh, handoff when we get when we bring the patient back to the either the neonatal intensive care unit or the pediatric intensive care unit, and that usually involves our team as the surgeons um, and any other services that might have been involved in the surgery. Anesthesia is there, the critical care team is there, respiratory therapy is usually there, the nursing is usually there. Um, there may be some others that I'm leaving out there, but it's a in terms of the actual post-op surgical handoff, it's pretty robust. And then what are your thoughts as far as trach tie goes within that first week, such as like umbilical ties versus Velcro? Yeah, we, we, um, we, we pretty much don't use any twill ties at our hospital. Um, in, we, we use it almost exclusively the Velcro ties. Um, and that's, again, in case it needs to be taken off um, in an emergent setting, it's a little bit easier to take that Velcro tie off than, than a twill tie that might need to be cut. Um, um, one thing I did forget to mention in our handoff and in our technique is we also have um, come up with a standardized form that's, um, I believe it's laminated, right, Cecilia? Yeah, she's nodding. So, um, yeah. so that has a lot of the information that's critical to the patient and unique to the patient, such as what's the patient's airway anatomy, what size trach did you place, um, um, are there, if this falls out, what do you need to do to get the airway back in, who do you need to call? Um, and I, how deep the suction and which right. catheter you need to use for the patient. So I think I might, am I forgetting anything from those forms? No, I I those are the key things. Like what to do in an emergency for that first week until the first trach change is done by the surgeon. What are the bedside staff? What information do they need for an emergency and what can they do? Yeah. And this, this came from, you know, events that might've happened either on weekends or after hours when um, there might be some bedside team members who weren't as familiar with the patient and, and, and an accidental decannulation happened or something happened, or maybe the trach plugged and they need to know as quickly as possible 
what do you need to do in that emergent setting as the patient's desaturating, right? So you're not going to be have time to open up the electronic health record and go to the and go to the forms and look it up there. So having the form right there taped to the patient's bedside is the safest way to go there. Yeah. And all their emergency supplies are put right at the bedside at that handoff. So their same size trach, their downsize, and all other parts of their go bag or emergency bag are right there at the bedside during handoff. Yeah, but and then once, you know, we we as the surgeons probably play a pretty short role there. So as I mentioned, the first first trach change, it's once that happens, um, things start moving pretty, pretty intensely for the family. And that's usually when um, every other service uh, gets gets involved with um, with some pretty intense uh, teaching and other kinds of care. Okay, so let's, let's go there next. So yeah. now, now it's day four, day five, and we've done our first trach change. Everything went great. Um, what happens next? Do you want to take that? So in the um, NICU and the PICU, we have inpatient pulmonary presence. Um, and so we actually round almost daily with the majority of these patients um, with the ICU team. Um, sometimes ENT is present. Um, and then what other players may be having an active role at the time of their um, acute clinical care. Um, and so, you know, I, I will say that right after the trait goes in, these patients are not naive to sedation, especially the neonates, they've been sedated their whole life. And so sedation is a big issue uh, while that first, you know, fresh trach is in place and before that first trach change occurs. And so the the speeding up the date of removal of the, the new trach and putting that new, first new trach in is, um, I think, very helpful for the ICU doctors who sometimes struggle with that post-op sedation. Um, but at that point, then we're really starting to work towards, um, can we get you off the ventilator? So when you are sedated after that trach goes in, um, in that first few five to seven days, um, often their drive to breathe is a little bit uh, aberrant from what they were before when they had less sedation. And so once we're able to know that they can breathe independently enough, we'll work towards um, getting their ventilator off if they're a pure airway, or we assume they're a pure airway issue and that their lungs should be able to support them without ventilator needs. Um, and we try to do that as rapidly as we can um, with the help of the ICU doctors. And then if we anticipate that they're gonna go home with a ventilator, then we start working towards our home vent settings. Um, and so weaning ventilators becomes um, days of the past. Uh, we start working on chronic ventilator strategy where we're um, really trying to get them to grow to the point where they can start to tolerate the minimum settings that we can use on a ventilator for home. Okay, and then so, so who, who manages the trach at that point? Um, often as, as surgeons, we, we kind of hand it off to somebody, right? Um, and can you, can you just tell me you know, how, how the, the structure is set up at that point for trach management? I mean, I, I think it's a little reductive to, to kind of suggest who manages the trach at that point. I mean, it's still a patient, right? Like um, there's different aspects to the patient. There's the ventilator, there's the nursing care, there's the stoma. So, I mean, it's really everyone. I mean, I think that's yeah. kind of, the, that's kind of the whole point of having a team take care of the patient, right? Okay. Yeah, I would say the same thing. It's, I, I always talk with families that this is like a team sport um, because every discipline has their area of focus. Um, so the, the ICU tries to sort of corral us all to get, you know, everybody's point of view and make sure that we're not missing anything. But 
um, it really is together as a team with all the different specialties and, um, you know, putting their part in because if they're not tolerating their feeds and their stomachs blowing up, it's impeding how Jen's trying to manage and wean them off the ventilator. So it's this, you know, constant back and forth of, okay, well, this is impacting this, this is impacting this. And all the while we're teaching the family alongside all this medical management and stability. Yeah. And the bedside nurses do weekly changes. So they're they're in charge of making sure that the um, trach is changed on a weekly basis and that the go bag has the same size trach and downsize trach in place. And they also will engage the family if they're at the bedside when the trach is due. So all the trach changes when a family member is present should be a teaching moment for them to help um, move their skills forward. Um, and on a weekly basis, there's a skincare rounds. And so we always make sure that the skin is staying nice and healthy around the stoma and around the ties. And so Cecilia and um, the EMT PA and one of the wound specialists from the hospital will round on a weekly basis to make sure that you know everything is looking nice and good. Um, and then, you know, the trach size appropriateness or cuff management, um, that comes down to the clinical needs. And then it's really a collaboration between the ICU, ENT, and us to determine, you know, is the trach backwalling? Do we need the cuff up? Can we put the cuff down and, and, and increase the volume of the breath so that we can move closer to home settings? And, you know, is the patient gagging because the trach's too long? You know, all those things then become, you know, big discussions among us so that we can work as a group to find the right spot for the kid. So you guys have a, a protocol you call stepping stones to discharge. Can you guys talk to me more about that? Yeah, I um, can explain that a little bit. So stepping stones to discharge is the name of the tool. It's sort of a standardized education tool we use at Children's Wisconsin. And every family will get a sort of it's like a candy land on paper that basically mirrors all the education that the family needs to complete before they can safely discharge with their child um, who's home on a trach and or a ventilator. So each little stone or is color coded and there's about 18 stones, I think, on ours, and you go from one step to the next along the course of learning about why your child has the trach up in the beginning, which we first talked about during the consult and first meeting the ENT surgeons, and then you start to learn how to do the bedside care with the nursing staff. Then we start talking about um, respiratory support if that's needed, and Grace and Lisa can spend some time talking about that and what that entails, and then it goes all the way through um, learning, you know, how to put all these pieces together and what we call independent care. And then eventually you get to go home. So the family uses that as a visual while the nurses are sort of documenting in the background, all the, you know, education that goes into the record, but it's a nice visual for the family to know where they are in their journey towards independence in their child's trait care. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Grace, can you talk to us more about parent teaching? Sure. So after that first trach change is done um, by the ENT provider, then the nursing staff does take over, um, like we mentioned before, with the family. So the trach changes, the cleaning around the trach site, um, suctioning, hand ventilating, all of that is done at the bedside with the nursing staff so that it gives families the opportunity to learn um, whenever they are able to be in, so day or night. So they participate with CARES. They have a calendar in the room. They let the nurses know when they're going to be in so that we can ensure that we have um, staff available to do that teaching with them. And then they work on that until we reach a medical stability. So if we're going to go home with a ventilator, we've 
gained enough weight or our lungs have grown enough that our breath size is big enough to go home on um, the vent settings that are available on, on our home vents. So then we would ramp that up to equipment teaching. So we wanna do that as close to the end as we can. It's overwhelming. I tell our families, this is like planning for a wedding. So you're gonna do these big things. You decide to get a trach. You're doing a few things in the beginning to get things set. You take a long time in the middle to just sit and wait. And then everything happens at once it seems. So we start this equipment teaching um, about two or three weeks before the family goes home. Um, because once we reach that medical stability, we, we require two weeks um, right at that point, stable, no increases in, in care so that we know we are ready to go home and don't turn around and come back. Um, so through our care conferences, we are coordinating with our home care companies to set up teaching with the family. So we require a minimum of two trained caregivers um, for each patient. So they have to sit through two teaching sessions in the home with their home care companies, respiratory therapist, where the equipment is brought to their home. There is an electrical check and a home inspection. Um, and they learn the circuitry and the troubleshooting and the cleaning, and they get their homes a little bit organized and ready to go. Or, you know, what does this look like going upstairs to downstairs or living room to kitchen to bedroom? What does that look like in their home? And then that equipment is brought to the hospital, um, a ventilator, their pulse ox monitor, their suction machine, a resuscitator bag, nebulizer, anything and oxygen, anything that would be needed to stay to the end of their visit and travel home with them to safely leave the hospital. So once it gets to the hospital, they meet with um, one of the three of us respiratory therapists to um, dig a little deeper and get clinical with their equipment. Why is that what we want you to have? Why does it need to be with you all the time? What are you going to do when this alarms? What are signs and symptoms of illness? Why... Um, what happens when you're, you become desaturated or your heart rate drops? We go into those emergency um, situations. We work together, the parents and the respiratory therapist, to set up the hospital room with their own home equipment so that they can see that um, set up and ready to go for home. And then we transition that care, put it all together through simulation, which is a little bit newer for us. Um, we did some research and it is now, we, we're proud to say a part of our discharge process. Um, we have a simulation lab and we set up three scenarios for our families to go through um, emergency scenarios with us before they go home. So they have a better idea of maybe worst case scenarios, things that they didn't want to practice on their child at the bedside, but want to be ready for for home. So it brings everything together. We celebrate all of that teaching with a walk. So sometimes the first time that they're allowed to leave um, their, their hospital room with their child would be um, after all of that training is done and they are independent and checked off on all of the cares and equipment that goes along with um, a child with a trach and event. Um, and then they move into an independent care or like a rooming in period where um, over the course of 24 hours, the parents do um, in or caregivers separate from each other. So one caregiver at a time and overnight and then daytime hours alone monitors off in the room using their home equipment, troubleshooting their equipment and really getting a good understanding of what the care of their child looks like for a, a, a big extended period of time. 
Wow. And then, and then they'd be ready to go. Very cool. Tell me, tell me yeah. more about the simulation lab. How, how do uh, families do in that situation? And, and is there like a formal assessment that they kind of have to, to pass before you say, okay, we can move on? Yeah, so the um, simulation started as a research study. It's something that had been studied at other institutions, and we were lucky enough to bring it to ours with some um, donor money that allowed us to finally get a doll that actually had a trait that was a child-sized um, doll. Um, and the families, I think, have been really appreciative of the interaction with the doll because it does, like Grace said, it allows them to practice and rehearse things that are too scary to do on your child. I know the... Um, Nurses don't, don't always feel comfortable, you know, dislodging a trach from the airway and letting things start to alarm and kids turn blue so that the kid, the parents can recognize the decannulation and, and what interventions to do. So we have that now opportunity to do it safely on this mannequin and give them that practice for a emergency where minutes and seconds really count and morbidity and mortality can be avoided at home if they've done and practiced it before. Um, and the improvements that parents seem to have in their competence and their skills from start to end of a session is amazing. Um, so after each section, it's just like we would do for medical training where you debrief afterwards and you, you talk about what happened and what went well, what didn't go well, how could we have changed what we, our interventions were, our communication style, all that stuff is um, assessed with them and they go through that and Grace and the RTs laugh that sometimes we need a marriage counselor because it's it's a test of how you communicate with whoever your partner is in that moment. And um, so it really does heighten their ability to take care of these kids. And when we looked at the um, study, it really showed that there we got about a month of home experience in a three-hour session in terms of their confidence and their adjustment to going home with using the simulation doll. Oh, wow. Yeah, the other the other piece that's really cool that um, we have the ability to do with that debrief is we have our social workers there because this is intense. You know, they're, they're doing full-fledged CPR, calling 911, and it, it can be, you know, scary for these families. So we have our whole team really there to help debrief and process those feelings and worries that the families might have right at the time before they go home as well. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Um, one more logistical question, where, where is your simulation lab and is it hard to actually get the families down there to, to make it happen in reality? We have two. It used to be um, on, in, in an office building that was sort of separate from the hospital building itself, but connected with an underground walkway. But this new dog we were lucky to get is actually um, wireless. And so we can wheel him wherever we want. And so now we're able to kind of put him in whatever spot is, is convenient to train the family, um, as long as he's been fully charged. So um, it's, it's kind of a lovely thing. That's really cool. We could do a whole other podcast on that. I have so many more questions. <laughs> Happy right. to come back. Yeah. All right. So can you guys tell me about when you do your speaking valve assessments? Sure. So speaking valve assessments are something that we work on first on the inpatient side. So we started a quality improvement project about six years ago um, to evaluate every child, whether they were a trach only or a trach in event for use um, of a speaking valve and if they were a candidate. It's something that previously we kind of waited, especially with the ventilator kids, until they were discharged because we didn't think we could really use speaking valves with our kids with vents and we 
did a lot of research and um, learned more about how to do speaking valves with our ventilated kids. And now it's sort of our standard of care that every child before they go home is evaluated by our speech team and respiratory team for um, evaluation for use of a speaking valve. So I'll let um, Christine and Grace talk more about that. Yeah, and so for full disclosure, what I'm going to say is that I primarily am a speech language pathologist who works with outpatients. We have an inpatient team of, of other speech language pathologists who um, will work with these kids and were um, are, are involved in the inpatient evaluations. And when I was brought into the team about five or six years ago, it was because of of, of this process and looking um, to, to do this process improvement. Um, so our, our the evaluations when we do them as inpatients and outpatients are very similar, but with the process that has been initiated, I have been doing fewer and fewer outpatient evaluations on these kids because essentially they're going home with the speaking valve instead of waiting until discharge, coming in for an outpatient evaluation and then having to start the process. But so whether it's inpatient or outpatient, it would start with a physician referral um, in order that a speaking valve assessment be completed. And our process is that we have a speech language pathologist and a respiratory therapist present. Um, and we really, um, uh, work collaboratively during the evaluation. There's a lot of things to be looking at and talking about, um, but pragmatically speaking, uh, usually um, you know, the speech pathologist brings the passenger speaking valve, the respiratory therapist brings um, the tools to monitor um, the transtracheal pressure, um, if, if they're not on already, um, something for monitoring heart rate and pulse ox, things like that. Um, and then it's the idea is that we really take a look at what their breathing looks like and what all their baseline levels are at. Um, if the parent is present, um, talking to them about what the valve is, what we can expect. Um, outpatient wise, um, we may spend, you know, a bit more time talking about um, the, uh, the benefits of the, the the passenger speaking valve and, and what we're expecting. Um, then we place the valve. Sometimes we can put it right on and um, kids do great. And sometimes we put it on and there's a little bit of a startle effect. So even counseling the parents about what, what's going on, what the patient's feeling, um, what we're looking for. There's a lot of um, things going on at, uh, all at the same time, which is why I think it's really helpful that we both do it together. Um, Grace, I bet you have some comments already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that having representation from speech and respiratory gives these, gives the different viewpoints of, you know, not only will the valve um, help you hear your child's voice, um, and then again, from speech, it'll help you to optimize management of your secretions. Um, it will then help with feeding, you know, if we're moving in that direction, but it helps with core strength. And um, I think it really helps us do better with our, when we start our trials off the vent. So working towards liberation of, of technology, we 
have restored peeps. So we can spend longer time or progress quicker, um, I think is something that we've seen um, with our earlier implementation of the valve. So there are so many benefits and that multidisciplinary approach really lets us um, educate the parents on the benefits of all of it and help them to be involved in their child's care. So I think that um, that early implementation and that assessment prior to their initial discharge after trach placement um, has been really great um, for the kids in our program. And then when Christine works with us in our outpatient clinics, either to reevaluate um, anytime there might be a change. Like I think that one of the one of the biggest reasons that we see kids and do them in our outpatient clinic is because we're starting so early, we put that big trach in the airway and there isn't always enough room to exhale. So we're waiting for growth, um, but we try on everyone and then we reevaluate um, every time we see um, these patients as we push them along um, down our decannulation pathway. And I and think so that this is one of those examples where multidisciplinary approach really does make such a big difference because it started as an idea from a, re a respiratory therapist that then became a research question, that then became a policy and procedure written by a speech therapist, that then involved you know, having an ICU buy-in because we were starting to do it on patients and how do you monitor in the ICU and who has the right to put it on, who takes it off, when do you take it off, what monitors do you have to have in place? And so really having all these ways that we could collaborate outside of you know, just our small team really became important to make this a success. And that's an amazing point in the patient's journey, just from the you know observer perspective. This is something the families just look forward to so much, whether it happens inpatient or outpatient, the ability to sometimes be the first time they're hearing their child's voice or you know, just a cry that's more than just a little squeak is just amazing to watch the, you know, the tears and the excitement and the videos that that happen with this moment. So it's always an exciting time. Wow. And you guys do it for all the patients, regardless of age. Do you do you manage them differently if they, if it's an infant versus a little bit older? I, everybody that is approved, I think, by you know, in in our weekly rounds, approved by pulmonary, approved by um, ENT, is is really our biggest. Um, um, who drives the ship the most, I think, as long as we feel that we have a patent upper airway and it's safe, um, we want to try it on everybody. Wow, excellent. And we have to get buy-in from ENT, pulmonary, and speech before we proceed with putting the trach on. So I don't know, Christine, if you want to talk about the speech things that you would, you know, say maybe would stop you from using a trach in a patient, because we do have some complex kids with complex neuro histories. I have full disclosure. I can't say that as an outpatient speech oh, language pathologist, I've been a part of those conversations. I'm really sorry I don't have one of my colleagues here to speak to. Yeah. No, that's okay. You know, one of the things that we always worry about when we put the speaking valve on is secretion management and if they can swallow, um, because when that speaking valve goes on, it, uh, it heightens awareness of the secretions in the back of the throat. And if they don't have an intact or a, a functional swallow, sometimes they really start drowning in their secretions. And so we really get a huge input from speech to make sure that, you know, we know the airway's open, we know the vent settings are, are appropriate for use of the speaking valve. Um, but then that third piece of the speech therapist also becomes a big factor and whether we feel like they're safe. Right. I I said I actually thought you were talking about the trach at the beginning. So yeah we and we, we get called as the ENT team we get called a lot about the the upper airway evaluation before they that speaking valve assessment. Um, 
And, you know, especially for the kids that have, that have airway pathology, whether it's vocal cord paresis um, or subglottic stenosis. And, you know, so sometimes we need to reevaluate because sometimes we've never actually seen the vocal cord function on these kids because they've been intubated their whole lives, right? Um, or maybe they've, they didn't have subglottic stenosis before, but now it's evolved to the point where they do and they have a little bit of narrowing there and that might be a limiting anatomic factor for, the, for them. Um, my general feeling is that, you know, it never hurts to try a speaking valve in the kids that have upper uh, airway, meaning suprasomal pathology, such as vocal cord weakness or subglottic stenosis. If, if it doesn't go well, it's not going to go well. I'd rather have it not go well in the hospital and us know about it. And then we can talk about what can we do to make that better so that your child can speak. So, yeah. Yeah. And placing that, that valve in the kids who are having trouble with secretion management, even in small snippets can help them get used to that sensation and then start to increase their saliva management, which is one of the reasons that we've been, mm -hmm. um, you know. We, we do sometimes point. get in a debate of like, is it safe or is it going to help? And um, sometimes you don't know until you try it, but sometimes there's reluctance to try because we're worried about their swallow. And then there's a push to try because we hope it helps the swallow. And, you know, sometimes you just don't know until you know. Right. Yeah. And I think the benefit of that restoring pressure and letting them engage those core muscles really in our um, in our infant population helps them to meet developmental milestones, which is so important. It helps them um, to learn to sit and roll over and stand and pull themselves up. So um, it helps kids go to the bathroom. All of those things that you do to engage, uh, that you have to engage your core muscles, um, that is just so developmentally necessary, um, this valve is so great for. Mm. And I think one of the nice things, too, about the way our program functions is since we do have those weekly inpatient rounds, we talk about it every week, but also in the outpatient setting, we have a multidisciplinary clinic. And so in clinic, when the patients are there, we have an ear, nose, and throat doctor, we have a pulmonologist, we have a speech therapist, we have a respiratory therapist, we have their clinical nurse specialist, we have all those people in one clinic. So when we're assessing readiness, we're not waiting for them to go see another doctor on another date in another location and hoping the communication gets back. It's all, you know, at once and live. Very, yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Well, Guys, I have to thank, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time out of your day uh, to discuss this. It's it's so um, educational and, and interesting for me to hear how other teams are doing it and how you guys, how you guys have figured things out to improve your, your patient care, particularly from a team perspective. Um, so I just want to thank you again uh, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.